you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. We're going to start a new series this morning. Thank you so much, Brad. On um, what the New Testament sometimes calls Balaam's error or the way of Balaam. Uh, this this passage is referenced three times in the New Testament, in Revelation, and Jude, and Second Peter. Um, and so it's actually a pretty important passage. Um, so I'm excited to study it. It's, it's, a, it's a fun one. Numbers 22, we're going to be in verse 1 through 7 today. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would continue to, to minister to us. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be so present in this room. Would you fill us with power? Come on, in Jesus' name, we ask for a fresh fire in our church, a fresh consecration in our church. We just declare today that we serve Jesus and Jesus alone. Everything we do is unto your glory. And as we study your word, we pray that you would grip us afresh. Grip me today. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, this week I was looking at a book by Andrew Walker called The Deep Church. The Deep Church was a phrase that C.S. Lewis used sometimes instead of mere Christianity. By deep church, he, he just essentially meant that, um, you know, the concept of mere Christianity was that there are basic set of doctrines and beliefs that all Christians believe. And by mere Christianity, he meant these are the, the core things that must be believed in order to be a church. By deep church, he meant the same thing. He meant here are the deep theological convictions that must be believed and held to in order for a church to be a church. And the book has this underlying premise, which I'm honestly not totally sure where I stand yet. I'm, I haven't had enough time to process it. Um, you guys, you actually should uh, think about things before you make really hard proclamations. Our grandparents knew that, but you have social media, so you just say whatever comes to your mind. That's kind of dumb, okay? Um, anyway, the basic premise of the book is that uh, historically there have been two uh, schisms in the church, what we call schisms. The first schism, you guys know, took place in 1054, and that was between the, the what we call now the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so the churches in the East and the West, the Greek-speaking uh, East and the Latin-speaking West, they had quite a bit of political um, tension between them and some theological tension. And in 1054, that kind of just came to a head. And those two movements split into what we call, again, the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek East, and the Latin-speaking West, the Roman West. So 1054 would have been the first great schism. The second great schism was about 500 years later when the Protestant church broke from the Roman Catholic church. And you remember, we've talked so much about that. The year was uh, 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door at Wittenberg. Martin Luther, again, the, the thesis was the straw that broke the camel's back. The Reformation really had been uh, stirring and churning for years before. But the date we give it is about 1517. We call that the uh, a second great schism in the church where there was this split. And the split, you remember, was largely over um, the authority of the Scripture being the supreme authority. The Protestants believed that... Um, History could be an error and that we needed to cling to the scriptures and the Roman uh, church was teaching that history and scripture were kind of equal in authority. And, and so sometimes there were practices that weren't taught in scripture, but, but promoted in the church that the Protestants were frustrated with. 
that happened about 500 years later. Now, the premise of Andrew Walker's book here is that um, 500 years later, which would roughly be now, that there's a third schism happening in the church. He says that this schism is not happening uh, on the... It's not confined to any um, denomination or any group. That this schism's not only happening uh, in the Roman church or the Orthodox church or the Protestant churches, but this schism actually is is taking place in, um, in, in the midst of every movement and every denomination. And he calls this schism the effects of the progressive uh, Christian theo- theology, the progressive church. And so, to make his case quick, to make a case quick, um, you guys know the uh, the Presbyterians at this point are split between a progressive liberal theological camp and a conservative camp. Um, bang. The uh, That was... I'm going to catch it one day, okay, guys? I'm working on that. The Episcopal Church, thank you so much. The Episcopal Church, uh, in the last couple years, has had a split um, over their theological convictions. And the convictions that are drawing the line is really on the authority of Scripture, how the church is going to handle issues like sexuality, abortion. Um, And the question is whether we should stick with the historic Christian faith or whether we should move forward with progressive ideals uh, and convictions but I say that that's even a, a sloppy presentation of the conviction. Um, in recent years, in the last 50 years, there have been major bishops in the Episcopal Church who teach that Jesus was not resurrected bodily. And they write books, and they still have influence in the church, and that is fundamentally not Christian. The Christian church's entire proclamation, when you study the New Testament like at all, the entire proclamation is that Jesus is no longer dead but he got up out of the grave. His, he is a bodily resurrected man seated at the right hand of God today. And so the teachings, once the scriptures are put aside as no longer being authoritative, there's this move away from so many basic tenets of the faith. And again, so we've seen that in the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church, all the mainline churches. The United Methodist Church that I was raised in is preparing for a great split today. It's on the the lines, there's a new denomination being formed. Um, we'll see what happens. Even the Southern Baptist Convention is having a real throwdown over some of these issues. And so Walker's point is that the, the split we're seeing today, the schism we're seeing today, is not a schism between denominations necessarily. It's happening amongst all churches. And the questions are whether or not the scripture is going to be authoritative and the church is going to cling to historic Christian teachings and values or whether we are going to progress beyond what has been taught historically. Now, we want to make sure, and you guys know where I stand, the Bible is the word of God, period. Okay, that's what we believe, not backing down from that. Um, There will be no schism in our church over the authority of the scripture. You can just go ahead and go if you want to argue about that. That's fundamental to who we are. Um, The Bible is is God's word. Um, And so... Without being too academic, um, postmodernism in our naturalistic worldview operates with the assumption that any supernatural claim must be false because the only thing that can exist is materialism. And the church, who very much wanted to feel academic and intellectual, and we have some crazy smart intellectuals in our history and today, and so that's not throwing stones, but we began to embrace um, post-modernity 
and to grab that and pull it into the church. And so, for instance, when people teach that Jesus was not resurrected bodily, the entire claim is essentially miracles can't happen, therefore Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. Again, that is fundamentally not Christian. All of our claims are supernatural. All of our claims are that, that, that God created the earth ex nihilo. That means out of nothing, God spoke, there it was. Our claims are that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. You want to talk about supernatural? Let's start there. Sinlessness. Jesus Christ was crucified in our place, raised from the dead after three days. Bodily resurrection, raised from the dead. And our claim is that at the proclamation of this gospel, dead spiritual beings can be born again. Infused with the very power of God liberated from the grips of hell and sin, and that you can have a new state in God. Our claim is that the Holy Ghost still heals the sick. Our claim is that the Holy Spirit still drives out demonic powers, which, yes, still exist. And so the entire premise of Christianity is supernatural. And, and the, the anti-supernatural worldview makes sense of nothing. It, it hides behind this scholastic idea and model, but it makes sense of nothing. It's gibberish. And so um, what we're seeing is this, this split in the church. It's hiding behind an intellectual post-modernity, uh, um, this progressive idea. And, and then we see this other church, which is sometimes being called the conservative church. Now, we would fall in the conservative camp. And what I want to say to you today, before we move to our text, I'm going to say a few things. Is first, um, we are not the conservative camp solely because we believe in conservative morality. Okay? We're not conservatives just because of our views on sexuality. We're conservatives because we believe what the historic church always believed. We're conservative because we still believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We're conservative because we believe that Jesus will return coming on the clouds of heaven and he will make all things right, eradicating death, sickness, every perversion. We're conservative because we believe what the church always believed, which happens to include issues of sexual morality, but the issues of sexual morality are not our fundamental foundation. Our foundation is this word of God and the historic orthodox doctrines of the church. So when we say we're a conservative church, we don't just mean we believe in heterosexual marriage. When we say we're a conservative church, we mean Jesus got up from the grave. And, and we, need to, we need to understand those things. Now, from there, again, the schism is taking place. Um, many times when you see reports that say that the Western church is in decline, you need to understand that that primarily means that the liberal progressive church that's splitting off is in decline. The historic Orthodox conservative churches are still growing and growing fine. Um, and so when we say, uh, this progressive movement, this movement away from the authority of Scripture, away from the historic beliefs of the church, this movement towards um, hyper-intellectualism that denies anything supernatural. We need to make sure that we don't embrace um, little pieces of it because, this is where we're going, because, one, we actually believe in salvation. We actually believe that God is in covenant with a people in the earth today. And when you start to embrace ideas like maybe Jesus didn't really get up from the grave, when you start to embrace ideas like maybe God is, is not triune or maybe Christianity is really just about um, elevating the poor, maybe Christianity is just supposed to be a social movement, you actually throw out salvation by grace through faith. And that is incredibly dangerous because I'm concerned with my kids' eternity. 
not just concerned with whether or not they fit into our modern idea of what's culturally acceptable. Much more concerned with them clinging to the shed blood of Christ Jesus for salvation. That's what the church always taught. Secondly, so, so on the one hand, our faith is a covenantal faith. And to be in covenant with God, there are certain beliefs, convictions that you must cling to, according to the scripture, to be in that covenant, in that salvific covenant. And so the progressive movement is throwing away foundational beliefs, and if you cling to those ideas, you are outside of the covenant. Two, the second error we're going to talk about today as we look at this crazy story with Balaam is this. God promises to bless to anoint, to put his hand on um, certain righteous people. And when we begin to embrace and promote and advocate things like, it really doesn't matter who you have sex with, whenever you want to have sex, just, just fulfill all of your desires. We need to understand that the Bible says that God will not bless that kind of lifestyle. So there is a covenantal issue, meaning we have to believe that Jesus Christ got up from the grave in order to be in covenant with God, saved by grace, washed by his blood. On the second hand, there is this practical blessing and anointing in favor that we must pursue righteousness, pursue holiness in order for God to bless. Now, that's not to say that God's love's fickle. We're going to talk about that. But it is to say, man, you can't live in totally open sin, rebellious, do whatever you want, and then say, God bless me. So many times we find ourselves in trouble, and the trouble is the basic consequence of our sin. This is what Paul means in Galatians chapter 6 when he says, God will not be mocked, you will reap what you sow. In other words, live totally selfish, live on the basis of just trying to gain wealth, live to fulfill all your desires, and you can expect to reap the harvest of what you've sown. And so those, those two principles, one, we want to be in covenant with God, two, we still reap what we sow, and God promises to bless those who serve him and love him and walk in his favor those two principles are thrown away with a progressive ideology. And the progressive church, number one, is not leading people into covenantal relationship with Christ Jesus, which produces salvation. And number two is promoting, is saying to a people, live outside of God's law and order, and God's still going to bless you immensely. And we cannot live in rebellion and expect God's blessing. Okay, so now let me read you the text this morning, and I'm going to show you how those two things play out in the life of Israel. We're going to we're going to look at covenantal status and God's favor and blessing, how those two things shake out in the life of Israel. Now, let me read to you from Numbers chapter 22, verse 1 through 7, and we'll take some time to get some context. Verse 1, Then the people of Israel, they set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. Now, 
We just stepped into the latter chapters of Numbers. And the people of Israel at this point are still in the wilderness, but they are actually getting very close to the Jordan and to cross. Remember, their first battle whenever they cross the Jordan will be with Jericho. So at this point, they're still in the plains. They're still working towards the promised land, but they're having battles with other people groups, other tribes, other nations. So look at Numbers chapter 21, verse 21 through 24. I'm going to show you just a little bit of context here. This is obviously the chapter before. It says, Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Arnon to Jabok as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. So what we see here is Israel, follow me, they're working towards the Jordan what, are they, what land are they after? They're after the promised land. They, they actually have no intent on capturing these tribes outside of the promised land. They're working towards the promised land. But they come to Sion and they say, hey, we just need to pass through your land. We're not going to drink the water from your wells. We won't steal anything from your farms or fields. We just need to pass through. But Sion and the, the Amorites, they say, no, this is a deceptive people. And they come out to fight against them in the plains. Now, Israel slaughters them left and right. They have total victory. So now, immediately after this, what we come to is uh, we're dealing with Balak, who is the king of Moab. Now, we actually find the same thing. Israel doesn't want anything to do with Moab. If you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 5, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 9, the scripture says this, And the Lord said to me, this is Moses speaking, The Lord said to me, Don't harass Moab. Or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I have given it, I have given R to the people of Lot for possession. So what we find is earlier, God said to Moses, Don't mess with Moab. They're the descendants of Lot. And I've given them that land. And so Israel here, they wanted nothing to do with the Amorites, they just wanted to pass through, and they're working towards the promised land. And again, they don't want anything to do with Moab. They don't want anything to do with Midian. Um, they're, they're hoping to just pass through and go on their way. But what we find is that Balak has worked himself up. Balak has decided that Israel is coming to destroy him. Balak nervously, rattle, he rallies um, Moab and the Midianites, which have been a, a neighboring people. And he says, these people conquered the Amorites. They will conquer us as well. We have no hope. They are blessed and victorious. Our only option." is to curse them. So Balak runs to the defensive, assumes that Israel wants a fight, when Israel actually doesn't, does not want to fight, assumes that Israel wants a fight and decides that he will curse. So the first thing we see is that Balak understood, he knew thoroughly, that Israel was in a unique covenantal relationship with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. And so uh, Balak does not say, get the archers, Mount up your chariots. We're going to go to battle with this people. Balak says, by God, they're a horde. They're going to lick us up like an ox licks up a field. And so Balak recognizes immediately. The first thing he's acknowledging is that Israel is numerically blessed. And remember the promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be 
as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. God says to Abraham, your descendants will be numberless. Now, what scholars tell us is that Israel, when they left Egypt, most scholars agree that Israel was about 2 million people. That's roughly like the size of Atlanta. Okay, now think of Atlanta coming to the desert walking towards you. Like, okay. So the first thing he says is, they're a horde. There's way too many of them. They're blessed. In verse 5, the messengers of Balak tell Balaam, they cover the face of the earth. And you get this idea of like locusts or insects covering the earth. They're plentiful. Second, Balak, so one hand, Balak says they're blessed numerically. Their God is blessing them with children and grandchildren. And on the second hand, he's saying they're blessed militarily in victory. They've triumphed over their enemies. They have some kind of unique favor and covering and blessing with their God. Everything they put their hand to prospers. We have no hope. Their God fights on their behalf, blesses them. So Balak looks out over this horde of people, millions of people, and says, Oh no, we have no hope to fight with them. Let's try to curse them. So he calls Balaam the prophet to have him remove Israel from the favor of the Lord. Balak assumes that the God of Israel must operate in the same way in which the pagan gods were believed to operate. The pagan gods were easily manipulated, bring a bigger sacrifice. The pagan gods were easily swayed, come participate in some gross sexual act before the altar, and you'll earn the favor of the God. The pagan gods were fickle. Please, when you performed the right rituals, the pagan gods in their minds, they liked ritual sacrifice and performance. Jump through the right hoops, say the right words, dress the right way, engage in the right sexual intercourse, bring the right food, and you will surely earn the favor of the gods. These cultic practices. Balak is right on one hand. He's right that Israel is conquering on the basis of blessing. But on the other hand, Balak is incredibly wrong, wonderfully wrong. And we'll learn this throughout the entirety of this series. Our God is not fickle. God does not bless Israel and then he's not swayed when another people come with more sacrifices. God says, I've set my love on Israel from generation to generation. Israel's proclamation, again, throughout the entirety of the scriptures is the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so on one hand, yes, they are blessed. But on the other hand, you can gather 15,000 prophets. They can cut themselves and bleed. But Yahweh will not change his mind about Israel. He's placed his love upon his people. He moves along anyway. And so Balak sends messengers to Balaam. Now, it's clear, we don't see this in the text, but it's clear when you get down into it, that Balaam must have had a reputation that spread for miles. Because we learn that Balaam is from um, north Mesopotamia. Uh, we see that in, in Deuteronomy, um, that he's from Pethor, and, and that journey to get from Moab to Pethor, that that would have taken months to walk. So we're going to see this thing where messengers come from Balak to to Balaam, and Balaam sends them back to Balak, and they're walking back and forth and communicating. But every journey would have been a month's journey at least, not two months. And so if it was a quick walk, Balak probably would have walked out there himself. 
but he's having to send messengers for miles and miles and miles to get to Balaam. So what do we learn from that? That Balaam was a, a sorcerer, some kind of prophetic, gifted, enchanter man who had a reputation for, for hundreds of miles that he could perform great spiritual works. And so Balak does not say, hey, call, you know, he doesn't say to his guard, call your nephew who has dreams sometimes. Let's see if he can come curse these people. No, he, he calls the big dog. Okay. And the big dog apparently is Balaam. Go get Balaam. So messengers come from Balak and we're told that Balak says to Balaam, look, I don't have the military power to conquer these people. He says to Balaam, uh, I, I don't have the spiritual authority to curse these people. And in a way, Balak is already courting or drawing close to Balaam. He's establishing a friendship. He's showing his weakness in hopes of establishing some kind of friendship with Balaam. He confides in Balaam. Balak says, I don't have the military power to conquer these people, but I have a secret weapon. I'll, I'll get the enchanter. I'll get the magician. I'll get the prophet to curse him. Now, next week, we'll step into Balaam, trying to understand Balaam a little more. But this week, I'd like to stop here and just talk about Israel. Um, I, we're going to do a little bit of a spoiler alert um, for the end of the story, which I know you guys hate that, but you should have already read your Bibles anyway, so you should already know the end. <laughs> you sinners. So let's do like a little bit of theological reflection, a little reflection of what we've read so far. First, we see that the people of Israel are truly blessed, right? Numerically, they're blessed actually financially. Um, remember when they left Egypt, Egypt showered them with gold and silver, and they are blessed in, in, in victory militarily. And so we see Israel is living under a covenantal blessing. The first thing that we remember from our text today is that although Israel is blessed, what we're going to learn throughout this narrative is that, again, Moab can get whatever prophet they want. They can dance and call for rain. They can bleed. They can get whatever shrine prostitute they want. They can roll on the ground and bark like dogs. It has been done. Okay, They can do all of that, but they're not going to make Israel unblessed. They cannot uncovenant Israel's covenant with Yahweh. And what we learn as a people quickly is that the church, the New Testament, Paul says this in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, or width. God, he's going to say, not demonic powers or principalities. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that could ever cause God to stop covenantally loving his people. Nothing separates us from the dynamic and all-encompassing, perfect love of God. The first thing we see is that our covenant, according to the blood of Christ Jesus, is sure. Again, that's one reason why we don't want to go down the road. We don't want to participate in the left side of the schism because they're abandoning the basic premises that lead us into covenantal relationship with the God of Israel who says neither height nor depth, death, power will ever separate you from my love. We want to first learn that God's love towards his church is sure. But let me spoiler alert 
for a second here. Let me tell you how the story ends. Every time Balaam stands up to curse Israel, you guys remember, God's going to cause Balaam's lips to utter blessings upon the people of Israel. And so on one hand, we're going to see that the enemies of Israel can curse till they're blue in their face, but God is not going to quit loving Israel. That's the first thing we'll see. But when the story ends, we learn this from Numbers chapter 25. When, when Moab is not victorious in cursing Israel, what we're going to see, we put these pieces together in Numbers 25, is that Balaam is going to give Balak advice. He's going to say, look, I'm not able to curse these people. But if you want to get them, what you could do is you could send the Moabite women down and try to get the men to engage in sexual intercourse with those women. And if the, Israel, uh, the Israelite men will ever marry the Moabite women, it'll only be a matter of time before they begin to worship Baal. And the moment they begin to worship Baal, then you'll see the judgment of God begin to fall on them. And so what we see, um, and this takes place in Numbers chapter 25, it's the reason God tells Israel from start to finish, you're not to intermarry with the nations, was because if they intermarry with the nations, it's only a matter of time before they begin to worship the gods of the nations. And so what we see is that Israel in Numbers 25, they're not cursed by Balaam. Balaam's unable to curse Israel. But in Numbers 25, we find that they begin to compromise with Baal. They participate in in intercourse with the women of Moab. They marry the women of Moab. And they experience a lifting of God's blessing because they compromise, because they worship other gods. And so listen to me closely because this matters. There are always two ditches on each side of the road. Um, You can drive in a ditch for... For a little while, but it ain't a good idea. I know because my wife can't drive. We've done that a few times. Um, If you see us on the side of the road, it was her fault, I promise. Um, (laughs) She said, you're fast at lunch today, boy. There are always two sides uh, of the road. There are always two sides of a ditch. On the one hand, we don't want to raise our kids in such a way that they are so afraid of taking the wrong step, of saying the wrong thing, that if they mess up, if they sin, if they struggle with lust, we don't want them to think that they've got to come back to the altar every week to get resaved. We don't want our kids to believe that God's love is so fickle to them that it comes and goes and waves. We want to be very sure that we're not communicating to our children that if you look at the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing, um, if you're watching TV and something comes on and you saw it, that automatically you're demonized. Okay? We don't want to teach our kids that, that God's love for us is, is fickle and the power of the enemy to demonize or to curse us is great. We can get out of balance there, and our kids can, be, uh, can actually learn to walk in fear. And sooner than later, you'll find that you're actually raising your kids in legalism, a legalism that says if you don't walk perfectly correctly, then you're going to be cursed. Um, and, and that kind of teaching is shallow. It produces very bad fruit, and it will destroy your children. And so we don't want to be legalist, and we don't want to tell our kids, oh, you better make sure you never, you know, you're, I, I was... Shoot, can I tell the story? You ain't my family, so we'll see. Um, I'll just say this. I was, I was with someone. A, 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 I was with someone, a, a believer, a, a young believer, and we saw an accident. We actually didn't see an accident. I'm lying to you. We saw a fight, okay? A fight broke out. We were driving in the car, and we saw a fight. And the younger believer says, oh, cuss word. Um, in front of me, and then says, crap, I mean, crap. Um, and so it, it was really funny. I just really enjoyed it. It just really, really made me laugh. Um, 
And so we don't want to go down this road of saying, okay, you said a cuss word. You need to go roll in the altar and do penance and weep and cry or God doesn't love you anymore and you're going to be cursed and you're not going to be blessed in the future. And you, as, as parents and as leaders, we want to say, hey, don't say that. That's not how we act as Christians. You know, you know, you have some kind of correction, but you don't shame and belittle and say God's love is, has departed now as if he's some kind of fickle thing. On the other hand, church, we don't want to live reckless. Okay, so on one hand, we want to remember that God's love is sure and that we don't fall in and out of God's love every other day. And on the other hand, we don't want to live reckless. And this is the other era of the progressive movement, which says, have sex with whoever you want. Watch whatever you want. Participate in whatever cultural activity that you want. And on this hand, we are actually living a, a reckless, selfish, fleshly life. And we are, uh, the danger here is actually engaging with the demonic realm and, 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 and living a, a, a selfish, sinful life and wanting God to bless you even though you're refusing to honor any of God's commandments. It's, the ditch on one side is if I say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, God's going to curse me. That's wrong. The ditch on the other side is I'm loved forever, period. I'm going to do whatever the junk I want whenever I want and expect God to bless it. That's a ditch, too, that we want to be careful of. Let me show you a few things from Corinthians just to prove my point. Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. This, 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 the Corinthian church, remember the chaotic, confused Corinthians. This scenario we see in chapter 5 is there's a son who's having intercourse with his stepmother in the church. And the church has not done anything about it. This is what Paul says, chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says, you've got a man who's having intercourse with his father's wife, and you're letting him continue on in the church as if that's okay. What I want you to do is cut him off from the church. These are Paul's words. Deliver him over to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh, so that maybe in the end his spirit would be saved. In other words, we say it this way. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you realize where, what you're doing and where you're going. Paul is saying, in other words, cut him off and let him reap what he's sowing. And maybe he'll come to his senses and realize that the patterns he's living are of the devil and are destructive. So here we see a man in the church, Paul saying, Cut him off because his lifestyle is destructive and he needs to reap what he's sowing in hopes that he'll return to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 through 22. So I'm just in the same epistle. I'm just working you through the same epistle. 20 through 22. Now I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So Paul says, when pagans bring sacrifices to their gods, they're not, they're not worshiping gods, they're worshiping demons. I don't want you to be participant, participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And are we stronger than here than he? So here he's saying you shouldn't drink communion, participate in the sacrifice of the Lord through drinking the cup of communion, eating the bread of communion, and then turn around and go to pagan temples and drink and eat their sacrifices because that would be to participate with demons. Now, people say this all the time. Christians cannot have demons. Um, well, Paul just said that Christians can participate with demons and we shouldn't. 
So the first thing we want to say, gosh, this wasn't in my notes, but here I go. The first thing we want to know is that we actually don't get our understanding of demonization on the basis of Hollywood movies, okay? So many times, you saw The Exorcist, and now you know how, de- how demonization works, okay? Um, like, the, the, there's only one word in the New Testament. So we've got this idea in the church, which I, I believed for a long time, this idea that um, Christians can't be possessed, but they can be oppressed. You'll hear that taught sometimes. Um, that okay is language, okay language, but the New Testament never uses the word possession, nor does it use oppression in that sense. The New Testament only uses one word, it's demonization. And the way the New Testament presents this is that different people can be demonized in different ways. There are people who are demonized to the 10th degree. They're really demonized. They need deliverance. That's what Hollywood shows as possession. But in the New Testament, there are times like this where Paul's saying, don't commune with demons, that you can invite demons into your life and can participate with demonic powers. And as believers, we don't want to live reckless and actually find ourselves participating with the demonic. Lastly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So Paul actually teaches here, we hate this as New Testament Christians, get over it. That's what Paul teaches here, that when people come to receive communion, you see just so quickly how holy communion is to Paul. It's be very careful. When when you come to communion, there are some who Paul told us earlier who come drunk. They come and get drunk at the table of the Lord. Um, There are some who come um, and are kind of belligerent and selfish. They brought dinner, but they don't share And Paul says, when you come to the table of the Lord without reverence, without acknowledging that this is the holy of holies of the New Testament, you can actually eat and drink judgment on yourself. And Paul says, some of you guys are sick because you keep coming and disrespecting the table of the Lord, and there's judgment on your life because of it. Now, is that divine, eternal, everlasting judgment? I don't think so. I don't think that they lose their salvation, but I do think that God corrects and disciplines his people who don't honor the blood and the body of Jesus. So, We just stumbled into like eight different ideas, but let me hash them out really quick. I'm not letting you go till I'm finished, okay? (laughs) On the one hand, the one side of the ditch is we don't want to teach our kids that God's love is fickle and wavers easily. On the other side of the ditch, you don't want to be so reckless that you're actually participating in the demonic. So let's step on some sticky places here, okay? Again, it is a spiritual gift of mine. When we talk about movies, okay, your kids watch movies, your grandkids watch movies. Um, You want to talk about Disney World for a second with the Disney thing, we can talk about it, okay? On the one hand, I, and I'm saying I, I think there's Christian liberty here to use wisdom and discernment. On the one hand, I'm not going to teach my kids, you like Moana, you're going straight to hell, okay? I'm not, my kids say, Dad, can we go to Disney World? And I'm not going to say, demons live in Disney World and God will curse you. He will curse you. The little mermaid sings with that thing, and that's, that's demonic. You know, Triton was a representation of some ancient Greek god, and you're going to participate. Like, I'm, I'm not going to teach my kids to be that afraid, to live in that kind of fear. Again, I think there's room for Christian liberty and wisdom, and so I'm not telling you necessarily how to raise your kids. I'm just telling you how to raise mine. I'm not going to embrace that kind of fear. On the other hand, like, 
I, we're, not, we're, not, we're not playing with Ouija boards in my house, okay? We're not doing that. There, there, there are things, and there are certain movies, like we don't really do horror movies, because I think that horror movies sometimes, they obviously scared the snot out of our kids, which is funny, okay? I get it. It's funny. Um, but then they lay at bed at night shaking and trembling with fear, and they find themselves participating in some kind of spiritual battle. And so for me, I'm not gonna, we're not going to do horror movies. And so every time we have that conversation, I want to walk with great wisdom, because I'm, I don't want to communicate to my kids, Moana equals hell. On the other hand, I don't want to c- communicate to my kids, live reckless, watch whatever you want, do whatever you want, it's all good. Because there, there are spiritual dynamics at play. Let me step a little further. This is about to tick some of you guys off. Yes. Um, talk Halloween for a second, right? Every year that I've been at this church, every single year, there's been drama about Halloween, okay? Everyone. Um, everybody got real quiet. Some of you participated in it every year. Um, on the one hand, every year, we have a group of people who say, God's love for us is sure. We're not, we're not, you know, we need to get in the darkness, preach the gospel to the darkness. We need to do stuff on Halloween and communicate the love of Jesus. I'm not worried about demons getting me. I'm worried about getting people saved. And on one hand, I say yes and amen. I'm with you. Let's get some people saved. And every year on the other side, there are some people who say, the church should have nothing to do with that pagan festival. And there's a participation. There's a history of demonic practice. There's participation in satanic practices. We don't want to live reckless. Let's not participate with demons. And I hear those people and I say, yeah, we we probably shouldn't be participating with demons. Um, And so both sides have a, a measure of truth that we all probably should hear, right? We, we don't want to participate with the demonic heritage of Halloween. We, I, I don't want to put my kids in little warlock outfits and, and push them out the door and say, good luck. Like, no, not doing that. Um, so I, I hear this side of the camp that says Halloween can be dangerous. Let's not be reckless. I hear you. But on the other side, I hear this side of the camp who says demons... Uh, cannot overpower the, the, the grip of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm not going to live afraid of the demonic and miss an opportunity to preach the gospel to my neighbors who come to my door. I hear you. I'm also not going to live afraid of the demonic. I actually find no reason to fear the demonic. They run in the name of Jesus. It's really funny. Okay, so um, I, I'm with you. And so for me, in Christian liberty, I'm about to offend 100 people. Um, in Christian liberty, I've gone both ways. There are years where I've said to my family, I've I don't feel right about it, man. Let's, uh, there was one year where we bought a bunch of Reese's, and you know me, I took sticky notes, and I wrote on every sticky note, um, the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. <laughs> Repent and love Jesus. I wrote it a hundred times over. When I got done, my friend said, you know, you could have just printed that, and it would have saved you a lot of time. Um, but I wrote that, and I passed it out. Repent, little sinners. Um, <laughs> you know. um, I've been on that side, and, and in Christian liberty, I may be on that side this year. We'll see, okay? We'll see where I land. Um, but then there are other years where we've said to our kids, all right, we are going to stay together as a family. You can dress up, but we are not going to dress up or promote anything. We're not, no witches, no goblins, no ghosts, okay? You want to be Bugs Bunny? We can do that, but we're, we're, we're not going to be witches, witches, goblins, and ghosts. And when we do Halloween, we're going to stand outside and we're going to try to talk to people and love people and share the gospel. So like this year we did, what did we do? We did Toon Squad. Okay. We were the, uh, what is that movie called? Space Jam. We did it. Okay. I looked great. Wonderful. 
and we did a thing on the front yard, and we tried to talk to people about Jesus. But um, I do not allow my kids to, uh, again, witches, goblins, ghosts, we ain't, we ain't doing any of that. We're, and so what I want you to see, what I want you to hear, is that you've got to, you have to, recognize the error on both sides. If you teach your kids that Halloween is Satan's day, that's a problem. Satan doesn't have a day, okay? He doesn't get a day. He didn't create anything. Why would it be his? Like, I, I've, I've been around families where the kids are scared of pumpkins. Like, God made pumpkins, okay? God made pumpkins. Um, so, I, I, we don't want to live that way. We don't want to tell our kids, anyone who participates in Halloween is cursed and going to hell. Um, bad move, dude. Bad move. That, that promotes legalism and fear and a shallow view of God. On the other hand, we don't want to live reckless. Please, do not send your kids out the door dressed as a goblin and say, go get them. I, th- I think that could be very reckless. There are lots of things that happen on the night of Halloween. Like, number one, sex trafficking is at its all-time high on the night of Halloween. So please put your kid on a leash, okay? Leash them. Or shock collar, whatever your style. You know, you do you, I'm going to do me. <laughs> but, as, but as Christians, we have to acknowledge these two dangers. And what I'm worried is with this schism, with the schism that's happening in the body of Christ right now, the progressive camp is going to, one, abandon covenant and the love of God by not teaching and proclaiming the basic gospel, which invites us into covenant, and two, they're going to promote a recklessness. Go live however you want, and what the Bible says is that you can actually participate with demons when you live in recklessness. And so we don't want to do either. We want to live in covenant. We want to say, like Israel, we are a blessed people because we are in covenant with God. And God's love is not fickle, period. Okay? My kid watches Moana. Shame on you. Don't, don't you come messing with my kids. Okay? Their wife's feisty. My wife's feisty enough. She can handle that. Um, on one hand, we don't, we don't want to say God's love's fickle. On the other hand, we don't want to live reckless and celebrate demonic and open ourselves up to any kind of demonic influence or demonization. So wisdom, discernment, this is, this is a nugget for you, okay? I'm going to teach you something right here. Some of you guys are going to hate this. The extremes are almost always wrong, okay? The extremes are almost always in a ditch. Christian liberty and wisdom reasons, thinks, builds safeguards, and proclaims truths held in tension. Usually the people in the extremes are in error. Um, and so, so we want to be a people who... Who, who say yes to our kids. If, if you, when you grow up, child, decide to go trick-or-treating with your kids, the Holy Spirit is not going to allow demons to flock all over you. Like the Holy Spirit in you is much stronger than the demonic that celebrates Halloween. You're, it's okay. But on the other hand, I want to say to my child, please stop with the exorcist. And, 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 and we're not witches, okay? We're not going to celebrate the demonic. There's, there's wisdom there. And this is what we're going to see with Israel. Israel's covenantally blessed, right? Balaam cannot curse them because the love of God will not forsake them. But they do find themselves in judgment because they compromise with pagan gods. You see that? Balaam can't curse them. But when they live reckless, they will be judged because they participate in sexual intercourse with pagan women and they ultimately worship Baal. And so we want to we hold those two things in tension. It's a ditch on either side of the road. What I want you to go home remembering is don't drive like Haley. That's what we'll... Don't, don't drive like Haley. 
So first, let's, let's pray over the word. Let's just take 30 seconds, a minute, and pray and ask God that this word would pierce us and would bear good fruit in us. And then we'll, we'll move to a time of ministry.